<coughs> so coming to the end of another day of contemplation, meditation, and arriving now halfway into our retreat already. We're about halfway into a week-long retreat. And uh, for some of us, it uh, that might seem like it's gone quickly, and for others, it may feel... Uh, a really long time. Time is very relative, isn't it, how it appears to us. But uh, we're very much now into the heart of our retreat, having arrived and made a transition into this form and getting used to the place and the rhythm of the day and having some uh, contact now with uh, our internal world and beginning to become more familiar or re-establishing if we've had... a long meditation practice coming back into this space. For many it's very familiar and a relief and confirming to come into retreat. For others, perhaps more new to this experience, it's been more challenging, more difficult to stay with it. And having now seen pretty much, I think, everyone that's on the retreat, we're very aware that it's a very wide range of experiences and um, approaches that you that you all have, and and while we're sitting here to um, in this role, helping facilitate the retreat, I'm also very aware that there's a lot of group wisdom here and insight and experience. So um, I just want to honour that that that's there within the group. And also that because there's such a variety of, of, of uh, experience and um, maturity or newness, that it's, it's not always easy to talk to specifically what's, what's happening for each individual. So I'm hoping, as I said the other morning, that you can just pull out from what's offered what's valuable for you and uh, have confidence in developing and being creative in your meditation practice and exploring from the things that you do know and the things that you have cultivated and developed, uh, integrating from what you've done already into this, into what we can offer, and into to, uh, so that um, you can really empower and develop your own relationship to spiritual life. <coughs> so I'm hoping that. Our role in this retreat is more one to encourage and support rather than to try and um, tell you how it is and (laughs) convert you to some particular form of Buddhism. And in many ways, undertaking these practices, is we're not really here to become Buddhist or even great meditators, uh, that's perhaps what we think we're doing, but really the, the focus of this practice is to liberate the heart. This is really the intention to, to liberate the heart and for the heart to know its own nature and to cultivate a compassionate response in the world around us to really have uh, to consider how we can cultivate um, compassion, wisdom in our lives. Meditation, Buddhism, ultimately these are means rather than ends in themselves. 
As the Buddha said himself, that his teaching is like a, a raft. He talked about his teaching as a raft that takes us from one shore to another. It's not perhaps the most perfect yacht or the most perfect ship or liner. But it can be just pulling together what we find on the shore around us, a few leaves and twigs and branches and making something that we can hopefully float on and not sink. <laughs> so we don't have to build a most spectacular boat. Um, we're just putting together what we can um, what we've received and uh, we, we start the journey don't we and when we get to the other shore we, we don't have to carry the raft around we can put it down for someone else to use so, so I, I really like this analogy because not many spiritual religious traditions refer to themselves as a, as a means rather than as an end you know, to, to, and Buddhism is very clear about that it's not you know, any concept or any way or any lineage or any teaching is really just a, a provisional. It's only really uh, a means. It's not, you know, they're not ultimate teachings, they're ultimate descriptions of reality. In fact, in the Zen quote of uh, Huang Po, talks about that the Buddha spoke for 41 years and not a word was said. <laughs> and in many ways I also talk about sometimes in the, in the Chan, Chinese Chan school that all the teachings really arise in response to our ignorance. You know, when there's awakenness, there's no teaching. <laughs> so all the many different skillful means and teachings are really just reflections, really, um, to help us reflect on our human condition. So to pick them up, use them, and put them down again, rather than becoming burdened and intimidated or righteous about them. <clears throat> Buddha gave a very essential teaching which I'd like to reflect on tonight the teaching on the Four Noble Truths this is a very much in all traditions is the heart teaching and, uh, he once said it, that that you and I because of not understanding these four truths endlessly wander through the realm of births and deaths endlessly wander through these experiences of becoming and seeking and looking for something and then feeling disappointed and then looking again. This experience called sangsara, a very word perhaps familiar, Buddhist word familiar to many of you. And this sense of sangsara is this feeling of wandering or seeking or looking or not really feeling at home or at ease, but this sense of always being agitated somehow and looking for something else or feeling we need to complete something or fix something or get things right somehow, which can be a very innocent intention in life. We'd like to better things, make ourselves better, make the world better, fulfill our projects and our aims and ambitions. But somehow if that movement's not illuminated by wisdom and guided by 
clear reflection, then it becomes just a sort of agitation that keeps us compulsive and, and driven even in our lives. So this is the, the sense of samsara's this feeling of wandering, and its nature or its taste is uncertainty. It's like there's always the feeling when we're bound by this sense of wandering, of, of a deep taste of not quite sure, or some sense of uncertainty, because that which where we're trying to find completion and stability is, is as was mentioned as by Kilisara in his talk last night, is always changing, moving, unstable. So recognizing, in a way, it's a very mature point in our... Um, unfolding as a human being to recognize the, the, the pain of that sense of samsara, to recognize that. And so the Buddha says, through not really understanding these four truths, we're compelled to repeat this pattern this uh, something, this feeling of, uh, of, of being burdened. And what I find very um, helpful about this teaching is that he doesn't start from the point of enlightenment or waking, being awakened or transcendence, but he starts from the very human experience of suffering. So the first noble truth is articulated that there is this experience of suffering, or of dukkha is the original word that was used. <coughs> It's the first noble truth. The second truth is that there is a causation, that there are factors that bring this experience to be. And the third noble truth is that there is an ending of dukkha. And the fourth truth, there is a path or way that helps bring about this ending of dukkha. A very simple form- formulation, these four truths. And this this first one that the experience there is this experience of of dukkha. Um, it's not saying sometimes when one reads that Buddhism says that life is suffering, <laughs> and actually that's not the statement. It's very very clear how it's articulated. It's not saying life is suffering. It's it's saying there is there is this experience of dukkha, and this dukkha. Each of these four truths has a as a um, recommendation of a practice in relationship to it. So the first truth, there is this experience of dukkha, and the recommendation, the practice, is that dukkha needs to be understood, or needs to be turned to, or needs to be contemplated or reflected upon. So this... This dukkha is something that's what's I think so very brilliant about this opening the door into the the the, the experience of liberation or the third noble truth or the understanding of emptiness is that that the door is opened at uh, at the point of a very human experience something we all experience every day we all experience this feeling of unsatisfactoriness this is what dukkha is pointing to it's a it's a word that literally means well one translation is do means apart from or separated from the akash which is the the perfect or the whole or the complete 
So it's this sense that at the most profound level, the experience of dukkha is this innate sense of being somehow lacking or not whole or not complete or not perfect, that we're born, we feel when we're born into a state of separateness. And from that, there's a, you know, the, the journey unfolds, doesn't it? <laughs> but with, with, when that state is not illuminated and not attended to with, with care and with attention, then, then it tends to generate patterns of, of, uh, of, of longing, seeking, of lack of fulfillment, lack of fullness. So in its most subtle sense, this dukkha is this feeling of dis-ease or separateness or always somehow being experienced in the world as being locked into the sense of someone in here that's separate from the stuff out there. And in that, you know, the ground between that, the, the relational field is, is often quite fraught actually. I mean, we'd like to idealize it and say it's full of love and bliss and openings. And, and, and there are moments like that, aren't there? But often the reality is it's, it's quite a fraught territory, that sense of, of being separate from others, from the world around us. It also can point to this, just this sense of dis-ease, not being comfortable, not being at ease. Or it can be more stronger forms of, of depression, despair, pain, agitation, the stuff that people have mentioned in the groups, separate, separation from loved ones, the death of loved ones, um, just, just being separate from people or situations, not being joined with those that you'd like to be with or situations we'd like to be in. There's always that feeling sometimes, isn't it, that you know, if only we could be with the right people, the right situation, then it would alleviate that feeling. Or, or contrary to that, being joined with the unloved, being together with those that we don't like or don't want to be with, or, or being joined with unpleasant, difficult sensations or the... When we're meditating, the mind is out of control and we don't like what we're with, but we can't get away from it. So these, these different forms or experiences of this, just this sense of struggle or stress. And so what I find very helpful about this, so often when we, when we don't illuminate that experience with wisdom, with contemplation, we start to struggle with it or we interpret the experience of suffering as a, as a personal failing. I must be doing something wrong because I'm, I'm suffering or I'm feeling pain or, or if I'm not doing something wrong, the world is wrong somehow. We project it out then something's wrong outside something, or we project it in, something's wrong with me. Um, I'm failing somehow. Or maybe we get really caught up in it and become like a martyr. <laughs> so no one's suffering as much as me. Um, really get completely wound up in our, our drama, our suffering dramas. Or we just keep constantly distract ourselves from that experience. We're constantly moving to the next thing, moving away from that feeling, looking, searching. So this... 
this injunction from the, the teaching to actually turn to that experience, to contemplate it. So the mindfulness we've been cultivating in our samatha practice, an ability to just hold the mind steady to the breath, to the body, to something a little bit more neutral, to sound, we, we bring that same quality of mindfulness, attentiveness, to bear upon the experience, if it's there, the experience of dukkha, not to fix it, not to solve it, not to sort it out, not to even sometimes name it. Sometimes it's intangible, isn't it? Nebulous, just some feeling of agitation. We don't even quite know what it is. But in a way, just bringing, just bringing the, uh, the awareness to hold that, to meet that, it begins to open the doorway to its, its resolution. And there's something I find, you know, I found in my practice over the years that there's something very healing about just being with the experience of, of dukkha without necessarily having to fix it, but just acknowledging it's like this. Being able to, to meet it. In reality, life isn't dukkha, <laughs> isn't suffering, isn't. It's it's really what's generating this. In in I mean, there's different ways of talking about this, but to try and keep it manageable, Buddha said actually there, there's a certain way that we're making the dukkha from our from the ignorance, the mind in a state of ignorance of not understanding the reality of things is actually generating moment by moment this sense of struggle the sense of it should be another way or I should be another way or things should be different uh, whereas uh, Master Hua Chinese Chan Master said actually life is wonderful existence you know it's magical it's mysterious it's appearing in its perfection and dissolving again but what, what the ignorance of the mind projects the not understanding of the mind projects onto the moments of our experience a sense of it should be another way I want it different I don't like the way it is so from as we start to notice that there's this moment as it is and then what are we doing with this moment here and now what do we do here and now with this moment we can start to notice the way the second noble truth operates Ajahn Chah would put it very simply, he says, he would say that really it's the wanting and the not wanting of the mind that generates this sense of struggle, generates this sense of searching. And it's in some ways it's quite simple, in other ways it's, it's not so easy to, to realize, to, to contemplate. So in this moment, if we're feeling a sense of agitation or restlessness or dislocation, then possibly we might be able to trace it back to the root causation of the mind wanting it to be a different way than it is. And it's not to say that there's not value in wanting things to be different than they are, but we can just put that discussion to one side for, for the moment we can come back to that later in the retreat when we talk about engagement but to really get more to the core of how to practice to alleviate 
this unnecessary struggle and suffering and stress that we generate um, from the avijja, it's called avijja, the not knowing, the not understanding the nature of things, the mind not understanding ultimately its own nature, its primordial awareness, not really knowing its own nature. It has a the tendency to identify, to sense through contact with the senses and through perceptions and through memories and through the um, feelings and the experience of the body. There's this tendency for the mind to feel a sense of somethingness, a sense of being something, a self being identified and designated and shaped by, by thought, by perception, by memory, by feeling. And that a self that somehow needs to be maintained, satisfied, needs to have continuity, needs to be projected into the future, needs to has aims, ambitions, which is un- uninvestigated, it's unilluminated. So the, 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 the core ignorance, as Kisar is talking about the, the root, the two roots, the root of avijja, not understanding, and the root of the jitta or the heart, really having moments of, of knowing its own nature as primordial awareness, being able to rest in that. But not knowing that, there's a sense of needing something else in this moment. There's something else that's needed, something else that we want. And so this movement, this what's called tanha, the second noble truth, is this prim- primordial movement of tanha, which literally means thirst, which I think is a very good translation. This sense of we're not quenched, it's not full, we're looking for something. And so the, the sense of, of the, the, the mind then projects... On this, on onto our present moment experience, a sense of wanting something more, or not wanting what's here. So this push and pull, this primary sense of not being able to really rest and contemplate as isness, the suchness of the moment. There's this sense of moving, being just slightly dislocated. And the second noble truth, very clear, talks about basically three kinds of shapes that tanha takes that we can get to know. We can get to actually see them operating pretty much consistently through our day. The, the kama tanha, which means the, uh, the, the looking for the right sensory experience, the right food. <laughs> Someone was talking today about unsatisfactoriness around meals and food. It's a very obvious one. Sometimes it's more subtle than that. The right feeling. Don't like the feeling we have. The right sight, sounds, contact. It's almost like scanning. You know, we have this way that we scan the sensory realm, what we can experience through the senses, to to find the the the, the, the experience that will complete us. Give us that, and we can have a moment of it, a moment of beauty, a moment of beautiful sound. And it's not a value judgment, because sometimes it can sound like this of putting those things down. It's not a value judgment, it's the tendency then to go, that's, that's what I'm looking for. And then when it shifts, the sense of disappointment. That's what Kirisara was saying last night, the birth. And then the, the 
the feeling of loss. We lost something because we grasped and when we lost something. So the kamatana of the mind, the, the bhavatana, which is more pervasive, this feeling of needing to become something that we're not. You know, we always feel we need to, I don't know if you have this, but for me it's like so powerful. So there's always this feeling I need to become something more. It's not good enough. I'm not good enough <laughs> here and now. I need something. You know, if I could only just be a bit more something. I had, um, I think I might have told this, this story before, but it was very revealing for me of this 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 way this Bawa Tanha works when I was talking to a friend of ours in South Africa who's um, who's a um, CEO of a uh, one of the top mining companies, very high position, very uh, you know in many ways in the worldly sense has it has it made you know, a very powerful position, very lovely family, wife, house holiday, all the things that, you know, that in some ways our modern world aspires to, that we condition to aspire to every day, you know, the message that this is really what we should be going for, very powerfully comes through all the time. Um, and so it really stimulates that, that bawa tanha, a lot of our society, the energy is really, that's very highly stimulates this feeling of we need to become something more than we are not good enough, successful, bright, happy, beautiful, you know, powerful. And, and it's not to say those aren't great things to become, but if, if we're not aware, <laughs> if, we don't, if we don't really handle those things with wisdom, then when the opposite comes about, then we can feel devastated. However, this, talking to this friend one evening about his job in the, in the mining industry, and the stress of it, enormous, to hold that amount of responsibility and responsibility for making projections on the stock market, what's going to happen and how much, you know, thousands of dollars and the possibility of them getting stocks change and loss and very, very stressful job and uh, saying that actually, you know, that, that level of stress just give them nightmares level of fear, such a high th- <clears throat> level of fear that just he was very honest, just saying oh, just, you just re- repress, repress the, the fear to do the job so I said to him, well you know, when, when does it stop? It was like, I was like thinking, wow, this sounds really difficult keeping that going, when, when does it stop? and he just said when I'm successful when I'm successful and you know, he's in his fifties, nearing retiring. So, and, and in a way, I mean, you think, well, you know, <laughs> but I mean, I could, in, in a way, I can relate to that because there is something that, that can just keep going. You know, what, well, how do we define success? When is it enough? So, in, when we contemplate the second noble truth, when we, when we're not, we don't, that movement of tanha is not illuminated by wisdom, then we have almost no choice but to be shaped by it. We become that energy. And if we're conscious, maybe we want to become the energy and then we can use that perhaps, you know, I mean, there's, there's a way that we can transform the energy and use it skillfully, guide it. But often it, if it's unconscious and it's just driving us, then it's a, it's a different experience. It's very stressful. 
And then when we've had enough becoming and we've become enough things, then the third um, form of tanha kicks in, which is called vipavatana, which is this feeling of like, I just don't want to exist anymore. I don't want to be here. It's too difficult. It's too burdensome. I want to just hide away. Sort of feeling you get when the alarm goes off at 5.30 in the morning. <laughs> this uh, uh, very, for, for many beings, a very deep sense of weariness, of, of pain around being embodied, being in contact, and this sense of just wanting to shut it all down, just go dull and conscious, push it all away, go into nihilism, annihilation. And uh, a lot of meditators actually have that... Um, quite strong tendency and get attracted to meditations. It kind of just, it's like going into our little cocoon, isn't it? We just sort of put our blanket round and go in, you know, f- figure out how to get a little bit more peaceful. And, I mean, that's okay, but there can also be a sense of aversion to the world to just keep it there. I don't want any disturbances. So, it is, so that's a starting point, starting point that we've learned maybe how to get some stability, some ability to be with ourselves, but we still haven't really illuminated that very deep root of Vipavatthanha, the desire not to really be here, not to really commit to be fully alive. And these, these forces, often we feel, when they're not illuminated by moments of seeing, we actually become them. We get shaped them. We feel ourselves as usually as one of those or combination. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we can actually not want what's here and be wanting something over there. So we're actually they're both operating, uh, or three operating. So, in the the remedy that the the Buddha um, advised is that. Just to have moments, and as we, you know, if we think about the whole issue of enlightenment, it can just feel so overwhelming, so big. But if we can think just moments of path activity, moments of illuminating those, uh, when we can see them, those energies with a moment of knowing, a moment of mindfulness, a moment of seeing, it's like this. This is naming it, maybe. This is, this is the, the desire not to be here. It feels like this. This is wanting something wanting it can feels like this so the, in, the, in the injunction in relationship to the second noble truth the Buddha recommended that these, these this desire needs to be let go of just to let it go let it or let it be not move with it and feel so that the mind the jitta the heart can when it's not being shaped it begins to feel its own completeness it's not being pulled out it's not being constricted and contracted. And then as that begins to happen, then the third noble truth opens up, which is really into a lot of what Kirisaya was talking about last night, is the, the, the realisation of that non... When the mind isn't grasping at anything, not rejecting anything, then there's the realisation that actually there's that here and now that is peaceful, the suchness of the awareness, the suchness of the heart, here and now, can taste peacefulness. And often the precursor to that is the, the feeling of 
of, of dispassion or disenchantment. We're not quite so enchanted with the things of the world in the same way. We're not quite so drawn in, quite so mesmerized. And in, in some ways it's a difficult territory, you know, the, the movement from the second noble truth to the third noble truth, from feeling ourselves and identifying ourselves with the, those energies of becoming, seeking, looking, wanting, not wanting, to beginning to let go or let be or not grasp. It can feel a bit disorientating. Well, who am I now? And that can, I think, happen a lot in meditation. We're, we're, <laughs> I've known myself all the time as, as you know, getting somewhere. Now, who am I now? I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> you know, or can be quite uh, bring up anxieties, dislocation, disorientation. So those can be some of the feelings. It can bring up feelings of relief, peacefulness. But there, there's, there's, there's a territory there to negotiate and in, this is where it's very helpful to have developed you know, from the summer to meditation a very uh, ability to know how to return to the sense of refuge when, when the territory is very unclear or murky or confused or we don't we ourself, I, the way we've shaped ourselves isn't quite the way it's happening anymore we don't know a lot of unknownness that can come up in meditation don't know the territory we're in but being able to know this is just like this. It's a state. It's not, you know, rather than being shaped by it, this knowing. So this refuge in being mindful with whatever's moving through the heart. And it's in many ways, mindfulness, as it strengthens, as it becomes a refuge, as it becomes a reference point, if you like, a place that we can rest into, that ability to be attentive here and now and know how things are becomes like a container. You know, for whatever emerges, it's uh, it's, it's uh, able to hold the uh, the territories of the heart and mind with shifts and moves and changes, and we explore this experience of just putting down or letting go or not grasping. Or we just with what comes up. There's a lovely term that um, supports mindfulness called Yoni Somani Sakara, which means something like, I mean, it's got a very interesting meaning. Usually it's translated as mindfulness and wise reflection, because mindfulness sometimes gets translated almost like a technique where you just try and be very, very attentive, but it's not very spacious. Can, can sometimes come over like that. I've just got to hold attention to an object and keep everything still, and I've got to slow everything down. <laughs> and of course, that doesn't really translate into everyday life or into uh, you know complex psychodynamic material that comes up, feelings that come up, contemplations about very big questions. People have brought in big questions into the group about life and death and meaning of things. But but if you this Yonisomani uh, Sakara, it's it's always complementing mindfulness, wise reflection, and the actual meaning of the word yoni means womb or matrix, and yoniso means to take to the foundation. Mani means mind, sikara means to make. So it's bit got this feeling of taking whatever's been contemplated to the root or the matrix or the womb of the mind. 
um, to bring into this reflective process. And so mindfulness implies that too. It's not just a something that's rigid or controlling, but it's also something that's very spacious and contemplative and reflective and is almost like chewing over. Chewing over things, you know, really contemplating how is it. And so, so a moment of, say, noticing the feeling of becoming, wanting to become or desire, it's not a moment of I must be mindful and get rid of it <laughs> because it's bad which is somehow how the teaching can come across. Desire's bad, I've got to get rid of it. It's more like being interested, you know, taking that and saying, well, this is interesting, isn't it? Let, let's look at this, contemplate it. We're not being shaped by it, we're not resisting it, we're just reflecting. Well, what's here? What, unpackaging it. Maybe there's something positive in that movement. You know, the, the, the positive face of desire is that which wants to connect, isn't it? Wants to feel it's like in almost the heart's longing to feel its interconnectedness with the totality. It just gets a bit distorted on the way. <laughs> wants to say uh, yes to life, wants to be inclusive, to, to gather in. So, in this um, practice of mindfulness, really the fourth noble truth is the path activity the Buddha talked about I can't remember the exact quote but there's this beautiful quote where he talks about the ancient path way through the forest to the uh, uh, I've forgotten it actually what was it to the city of anyway it's an analogy to Nibbana to Nirvana because the third noble truth is really about this taste of nibbana, a moment of just tasting, when we, the mind is not grasping, tasting its own nature. He talks about this ancient pathway through a forest, through a thicket, through a woods, to this ancient city, beautiful city, which is an analogy to, to the deathless. And this pathway is the pathway traversed by the enlightened ones of old, and that he is just uncovering the pathway and showing the way. So there's this analogy of the ancient... I mean, something when I read that, it's like the ancientness of this lineage of traversing this pathway. I mean, the Buddha's like saying, I didn't, I didn't really discover this. I'm just like pointing to something that's already been going on for eons, possibly, and pointing this way. And the essence of this, the, the Eightfold Path, the essence really, I mean, just putting it into a, into a pithy form, is really this, uh, the heart of it is, this cultivation of the heart of awareness or mindfulness. And ultimately one's beginning to replace the avidya of the mind, the not knowing of the mind, the mistaking uh, the way things actually are, the un- independable nature of things, the changing nature of things, the empty nature of things. You know, how we make assumptions that things will be more permanent than they are, how we make assumptions about ourselves and about others and about life, which are actually erroneous often. They're not really accurate. How we generate, how the mind, based on its condition, will project a reality onto the world around us. So replacing this unconscious, these unconscious patternings the unconscious moving of tanha, replacing that with moments, the avijja, 
of the mind with moments of vija or knowing or awareness or mindfulness. Just, we can only do it moment by moment, not one heroic shift, but moment by moment, and just shifting. And then from that place, as the heart begins to know its own nature, is more unobstructed, more reflective, more open, more spacious, it's able to resonate with the world around us and find and to know the appropriate response when it's in contact. The appropriate response that emerges from knowing the emptiness or phenomena. That actually when we when we look more more and more deeply it feels like there's these solid entities. But as we look more deeply through the eye of wisdom we notice actually there's forms moving, changing like the Buddha said, like bubbles on the Ganges River, you pick up a bubble, it seems like the Ganges, it seems like a river, it seems like something solid, and you pick a piece up, and it just flows through your fingers like a bubble. So in this this, uh, third noble truth, the injunction is that it's not something we can grasp or attain to. As uh, Kilisara pointed out last night, it's something to be realized. We, the heart realizes its own nature, it really like tastes when it's not, when the mind is not grasping, not rejecting, just here and now resting, it tastes the taste of peacefulness. Non becoming, not being born, not dying, not going anywhere. And then there's the tendency then to make a preference, isn't there? I prefer peacefulness over the movement. <laughs> I prefer the emptiness over the forms. But I'm going to leave Kirisara to talk about that lessening of that distinction into a non-dual place, because actually I think he talks about it, understands it better than I, but... There's, a, there's, there's sometimes this sense of, well, actually, I'm going to just stop that piece there and pass <laughs> it. <laughs> but what I'd like to uh, finish tonight's contemplation with is, is to continue on a little bit from this response to the world around us, this place in terms of, of resonating and being with the things that we're contemplating. And it it came up again from a discussion um, in one of the groups this afternoon. And it was around, and it came up from the questions that um, were asked at tea time, just before tea time. And um, for me it evoked this uh, contemplation around the place where we don't, you know, when we're with suffering, we're with pain, the place where sometimes life is just like that, isn't it? I mean, sometimes we can alleviate suffering, but sometimes we're in situations that are just difficult. Or sometimes we're, we're when we become very fond of someone and they die, or when we attach and we're frightened, Should I, can I be attached because I'm going to suffer? The difference between conscious suffering and unconscious suffering, how to use suffering when it's there or pain or struggle, and how if we're unconscious with it, we just get defeated, overwhelmed, 
and how we can use that experience actually to cultivate compassion. How when it when we are suffering, and not compassion in the way of like I've got to be compassionate, but the ability to stretch the heart and the mind to be patient with and to include that which isn't easy to be with. And I think a lot of meditation practice is, is about that, really. It's just being willing, and we start with this body and mind. Often we're very, very dismissive about our own being. We're very judgmental. It's, you know, someone else or something else has got it more together or is better, or it's comparing and judging. And so being able to, with our own experience of limitation, struggle, suffering, what we've been working with, can there be a way of stretching and opening to meet that, to be with that, to listen more deeply into that. And then places then in life where we don't really even understand exactly what's going on. You know, some people have talked about things that have happened in life, you don't really understand, why did this happen? I was so much wanting a relationship to work and it fell apart I so much someone that died I didn't want them to die these unfathomables life and we can get very kind of trying to figure out is it we can have you know um, perceptions about that it's karma it's this it's that it's the other but somehow for me the compassion is just to stay in that place of I don't know but I can be with it I don't know why it's like this. I don't know why the world is like this sometimes. I really don't. wish it wasn't, but it's like this. And so in a way, that quality of heart from the, the emptiness, the emptying, is not a vacuous, dislocated void, is it? It's in a way, it's an emptying into an interconnectedness, into realizing that there there isn't any ultimate separations. There's a way that we're connected and interwoven with the whole and then in that for me my experience is a lot of mystery a lot of don't know actually a lot of unknown but can I be with that can I meet that can I allow my heart to stretch my mind to stretch to just listen more closely more deeply to how it is in its mystery in its unknownness Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.